Hello and welcome to episode number 84 of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast has been published onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, March 22nd, 2010. Today we are joined by Bentley Christie of the, web, of the website redwormcomposting.com. Bentley is a redworm composting hobbyist who has experimented with various different worm bins and configurations for redworm composting. The site redwormcomposting.com is designed to share information and experiences about redworm composting with others and has a very active user community. Bentley Christie, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thanks very much, Frank. Great to be here. So from what I can tell, there are many different species of redworm used for composting, but two in particular, known in the Latin name as Icinia fotata and Icinia andre. What are the most important characteristics of these worms that are important for composters and gardeners to know? Well, uh, Icenia fetida is probably, probably the most common one. Icenia andrei is actually a very, very similar worm to, to fetida. And just, you know, a bit geeky here, but just, it requires essentially molecular analysis in order to tell those two apart. The other, the other really common composting worm is actually Icenia hortensis, and that is known as the European nightcrawler. And those two are quite similar, the, the uh, fetida and the hortensis. Those are probably the two most common worms that are used. And there's, there's a few others. Generally, uh, the others that are used are more of a tropical worm. You know, there's a blue worm and an African nightcrawler as well. But other than that, it's, it's, it's actually really just a handful of, of composting species that are used. And by far, the uh, red worm, as you mentioned, is, is certainly the most common. Now, as far as, as uh, requirements, that was the question, right? <laughs> sort of went off on a tangent there. Well, I just want to know what, what, we'll get to the requirements. I just want to know what some of the important characteristics about these worms that, uh, you know, make them useful for composting and that uh, composters need to know. Okay, well, that, well there's certainly any, any species, any of these, these composting worms are known as epigeic worms. And essentially that means that they inhabit a, a sort of location up above the soil level. They're not soil worms per se. So one very important thing that people should know is that you can't just go out into your garden and, and dig up some garden worms and expect to, to start up your, your worm composting system. Now these, these types of worms are very, very well adapted to a rich organic environment. So food wastes, uh, compost heaps, manure piles, these sorts of rich environments are where they thrive. So it's very important that you obviously have some sort of, of waste material to feed these worms. If you, if, again, if you throw them in a, in a pile of soil or, or some uh, not very rich environment, essentially they're, they're going to either move from the location or they're, or they're going to perish. So they, they, they reproduce very quickly. They grow very quickly. And if you provide them with the, the ideal conditions, you know, you're going you're gonna to have a lot of, of worms on your hands in a fairly short period of time. Okay, now, do you know much about the geographic origin of these worms and what their exact niche in a natural environment is? My understanding is that, you know, there's, there's multiple 
sort of uh, theories on this. My understanding is that, that most of these worms in general came from Europe originally. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's sort of the general consensus is that a lot of these worms, certainly the European nightcrawler, and and some of the you know, many of the soil worms, such as the uh, the Canadian nightcrawler, you know these a lot of these worms have come come from Europe, you know presumably in boats and whatnot. Um, they generally are, like I said, they're very well adapted for a very sort of organic rich material environment. So generally, you don't see them spreading around all that much. There is a bit of concern that I understand in sort of northern regions that, you know, some of these these worms let go as bait and whatnot can start to spread around in the in the forest and, and feed on forest litter and this sort of idea. But generally they're they're more adapted for a sort of human environment, I guess, like places where humans exist. So the manure piles like on a farm or you know in the city in compost piles, they're generally very associated with human activity. So you, you, you probably won't find too many just sort of going out into nature, for example. So that's sort of, you know, generally the range would be associated with where, where humans are living, essentially. And then they're very, very widespread across North America at this point. Right. Well, where humans are living, that's pretty much most of the face of the, of the terrestrial <laughs> Earth at this point. Um, no, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And and in in a case like, you know, in, in a desert or in in these sort of hotter regions of the world, I'm sure there's there's plenty of locations where where you wouldn't find them too readily. But but I'm sure in you know locations like if from I live in southern Ontario, and and I've certainly surveyed some farms and and whatnot in the in the local area. And I've found redworms occurring essentially naturally. I don't know if you can really call it naturally, but on their own anyway, in manure heaps and, and this sort of thing. So they do get spread around a bit, but generally they are very associated with, with sort of the human activity. So uh, they, they're associated with human activity and they're maybe helping people or, or trying to form, form this symbiosis with people. And a lot of people aren't even aware of it, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. Like, I'm sure the vast majority of farmers that would happen to have them on their land wouldn't really realize it. And, then, and if they knew just how effective they are in terms of processing their, their manure, they might be a little bit more interested in, in the process of vermicomposting. But it's, it's, it's certainly come a long ways. I mean, there's a lot of people that are now aware of vermicomposting and, and this idea of worms processing waste. But it's it's still sort of in its infancy, as far as I'm concerned. Lots of people are are relatively clueless as far as as uh, these worms go. So, do we have any sense of uh, do do you know of anyone who's done any research, or do you have a sense that these things, these species of worms, actually co-evolved with people? That's almost what it sounds like. Yeah, I don't I don't know about actual academic research, like specific journal articles or anything like that. You know, I haven't really looked into the biogeography and this sort of idea of, of composting worms. Uh, there's certainly a lot of research having to do with vermicomposting process and the, and the end product of vermicomposting, the, the uh, vermicompost, of course. But, yeah, I'm not actually too familiar with, I've, this is more me reading, you know, various various sources and, and just sort of getting an idea. Don't quote me on that. This is sort of my general sense that, that they do tend to be associated with more of a, 
a human affected environment than than with a natural environment and there's there's certainly epigeic species out there that would occur more in a natural situation like a forest litter worm that would live up in the forest litter and these generally aren't aren't going to be the same same sort of species as as these ones that people are using in their worm bins in their their backyard composting systems well it's very plausible to think um there's a book called ecological imperialism and it talks about how humans kind of created this relationship with animals and that's and Jared Diamond also writes pretty extensively about it it's Alfred Crosby who wrote the book ecological imperialism but um it's very plausible to think based on the thesis of the writers i just mentioned that uh these worms just kind of found a niche uh on the farm in um the mediterranean and europe and and uh, the old world and then just kind of colonized the world uh via the spread of human agricultural practices so i, I want to ask you uh what is the history of human use of these worms for the purposes of vermicomposting now that's a very good question um as far as the 20th century is definitely the the big you know well-known sort of time as far as using uh, composting worms. I don't even know of any previous, of course, there's, you know, Darwin had his, his, uh, his publication on earthworms, but specifically he was referring more to the, the soil species. And I don't really know of any, any documentation on composting worms prior to the, the 20th century. And as far as the actual vermicomposting industry and really sort of homeowners and, and general public getting involved in all this, I would say that it's probably really sort of happened within the last 30 to 40 years. You know, the 70s were, were huge for vermicomposting and worm farming. And, you know, that was a period actually of a lot of scams and scandals and whatnot. People were creating these pyramid schemes and everything else. And that's probably part of the reason that a lot of people ended up learning about it. It's sort of unfortunate, but at the same time, it did get the word out quite a bit. And that was around the time that, that Mary Appeloff, who is sort of the, the godmother of vermicomposting, I like to think, that was around the time she was starting to, to formulate her, her uh, Worms Eat My Garbage book, which is, is pretty well the, uh, the Bible of vermicomposting. So I would say that, that definitely within 40 years is really, really the, the primary period. I'm sure people knew about it before then but but like i said i haven't really come across all that much uh, documentation before that time okay uh so let's talk more specifically about the worms and uh how they behave like most earthworms these species are hermaphroditic can you describe the life cycle of these red worms and some important things that composters need to know about the red worm life cycle well the I think I mentioned already they're an incredibly, incredibly tolerant worm. They're just very, very resistant because of the type of habitat they live in. They're in this sort of transient habitat that they can change very, very rapidly. So the good news is that they are a very tolerant worm and will put up with quite a lot. Essentially, there are, are three different main stages of their life cycle. Uh, they start in what's known as a cocoon. You know, I refer to it as an egg and many people refer to it as an egg. That's actually a bit misleading because it actually contains multiple eggs. But the cocoon is essentially the, the resistant resting stage, essentially. 
And throughout their life, throughout their lifespan, these worms, similar to other earthworms, but sort of in in, in a greater abundance, I guess, um, will release these cocoons. They essentially have to mate. You know, they can mate once, exchange sperm. Like you said, the hermaphroditic, so they exchange sperm with one another, and then as long as they have that sperm, they can continue pr to produce these cocoons over time. Um, the cocoons, it depends on the environmental conditions. If it's a very, very harsh environmental conditions, the, it'll take quite some time before the cocoons hatch. But, you know, in, in ideal conditions, a matter of, of weeks for sure, and maybe even more rapidly than that. And then you have essentially the juvenile. And basically the juvenile, again, it's another, another stage. It probably only lasts a matter of weeks before they have the full uh, development of what's known as the clitellum, which is essentially the, the main reproductive area of, of an adult earthworm. And yeah, so it's, it's just sort of the three different stages. And essentially from cocoon to adult, it can literally be a matter of weeks you know, in order to uh, reach that full development, which is very, very rapid as far as earthworms go. Now, are they prolific reproducers? Do they put down a lot of cocoons? Do they do it all at once, or do they do it gradually over their lifespan? It, it would, like one thing I'm going to say right off the bat is that a lot of things in vermicomposting depend on a lot of different things. There's many, many different variables that can have a huge impact on the vermicomposting process. You know, things like temperature, what type of food material is being used, moisture content. These are all very, very important considerations. So it really, really depends on the environment that these worms sort of find themselves in. You know, in a in a... I guess what you'd say, an ideal condition, maybe a manure pile that, that would have a, a nice moisture content, it would be nice and warm. You, you'd probably be seeing constant, constant cocoon production. And like I said, every time the, the, the sperm, sperm stores run out, reprodu reproduction over and over again as well. So it would certainly, I, I have a feeling that they, they reach, I'm not 100% sure, but I think they do reach in, in a sort of old age point where they wouldn't be releasing cocoons anymore. But for a, a good proportion of their adult, adult uh, period, they will certainly be uh, continuing to release cocoons over their lifespan. Do we know how long their lifespan is? Now that would, again, <laughs> again, it all depends, but um, I think in a protected artificial sort of human affected environment it can probably be you know, a matter of a couple years or so i've heard out in, in the sort of wild um they they don't generally live quite as long there's certainly other factors that are going to affect them out there there's predation and you know if it's a it's a harsh environmental conditions like in a dried out manure pile or whatnot they can probably get killed off relatively quickly. And that's sort of why these, this cocoon stage is, is as important as it is, because it's sort of, in, in a lot of cases, can re represent sort of the, the continuation of uh, future populations. But it, not as long, generally, they, uh, they seem to be more focused on fast, lots of reproduction, all at once kind of thing, rather than long lifespans, as some of the other sort of soil worms, for example, I've heard that some of them can live many years. 
I think uh, 30 years or something like that, some of those uh, bigger soil worms. So generally, you're not going to see much more than a year or two, I don't think, for the most part. Um, is there anything relevant or important people should be aware of in regards to the morphology of these red worms? Well, the, the most important consideration for really any earthworm is that the surface area, the skin zone, is an incredibly important organ for them. This is essentially where they, they have the respiration and they're very, very sensitive to any harsh chemicals of any sort. And the redworms, as tolerant as they are, um, they're, they're very, very intolerant of, of salts of any sort, inorganic salts and things like ammonia and just chemicals in general um, it's coming into contact with with their skin it, it's going to be not a good thing at all so that's something that, to keep in mind uh, they, they require darkness darkness is is something they're very they're very very light sensitive so uh, one thing that i see with with newcomers is quite a few of them tend to put them in these bins that are totally see-through and I, I'd certainly recommend that you go with something that is dark and doesn't doesn't allow the uh, the light in, just because they are sensitive to that. And in the case of, of sunlight, it can actually kill them. So, so that's certainly something to keep in mind. Um, because of this this skin and the importance of of the gas exchange and whatnot, it's very important to keep the worms moist as well. So moisture content of the system is uh, definitely an important consideration. Now, the problem with moisture is it's sort of a double-edged sword because the more moisture you have, that tends to result in uh, lower oxygen content. And the worms do, do need oxygen. They're very tolerant of low oxygen conditions, but they certainly do need oxygen. So you have to find that sort of balance of, of moisture and aeration in your system. And that's sort of, you know, warmth, they're very tolerant. The, I've had I've literally found a redworm wiggling in a frozen piece of compost, so there's they're certainly quite tolerant uh, down at the low end, and you know up up into the the 30s in, in Celsius, um, they're, they're certainly they can tolerate that. But I think that that's sort of the, the main main considerations as far as these worms go. Now tell us about the most basic compost the most basic composting system a person can devise using these worms. The most basic worm composting system? Yeah. I well the one thing I always I always recommend that everybody who gets started don't bother you know dropping hundreds of dollars or anything. The ba very best way to get started I think is with just a run of the mill rubber made tote type of of worm composting system. Now it's just sort of a bit tricky. It's a bit of a learning curve with these systems, just because they they're generally going to be an enclosed system. They're not going to have quite the the airflow of some of the more advanced systems. But you just can't beat it in, in terms of of cost. Very very low low cost to get started, and they're great at at retaining moisture. And they're, they're just in a, in a lot of ways, it's just sort of a nice basic way to, to get into the uh, process of worm composting. And as long as you sort of follow the, the basic setup guidelines, you should be in good shape with, with that type of system. So tell us, uh, talk us through the basic setup guidelines just briefly. Okay, well, I have a sort of recommendation. Not everybody has 
necessarily recommended this. In the, in the past, a lot of people sort of generally assume that you're going to set up your system and put the worms in at the same time. What I generally recommend is that once you know you're going to get into vermicomposting, you're going to order your worms and whatnot, I would recommend setting up your system maybe a week or even two weeks in advance of getting the worms. Now, the reason for this is that the worms are actually, you know, they're not really munching on the carrots and the, the various pieces of food waste that you're putting on there. It's the, the microbial community that develops on these materials that provides most of the nutrition for these worms. So the best way is that no matter what, when you introduce worms into a brand new system, they're almost certainly going to go through a period of adjustment and a period of, you know, a lot of them are going to want to escape and they're just going to be unsettled. So the more you can do to make them feel at home, the better. And by providing them with a, a nice, nice sort of food source that's already there when they arrive and just that sort of rotting environment that they're generally used to, I think you're going to definitely get off to, to, to a good start. So generally what I would recommend is um, this, this is material that I re well everybody refers to as bedding, and this is extremely important. You know, bedding is is almost more important than than the food itself. And it really, when it comes down to it, it is more of a long term food source itself because it does get does get broken down. But bedding is essentially um, any carbon rich material that is going to absorb moisture. Uh, it's preferably a material that's going to also encourage you know airflow i i like the shredded cardboard as uh, probably my favorite type of bedding some people use things like like peat moss i find that that the surface area is too small and it tends to compact and that impedes the airflow so as long as it's something that provides a bit of airflow absorbs excess moisture and helps to balance that carbon to nitrogen ratio uh, those are are sort of the considerations as far as the bedding goes and when you're first setting up, if you are going to let it age, uh, generally you can get away with adding almost equal amounts of food and bedding at the same time. And generally what I will do is, is do a bit of a layering system. You know, start by adding a, a bit of a false bottom down in the lower, lower reaches of the bin of, of the uh, bedding material, then some food, then bedding, and then basically just sort of all the way up and, and top it up with, with a layer of bedding. Now, while you wait for the uh, bin to age before adding the worms, it's not a bad idea to check on the system. Um, just to sort of the moisture content is going to be an important consideration. I don't generally recommend, you can certainly uh, soak everything down before you add it to the bin. I generally sort of wait to see what type of moisture is going to be released from the food waste itself. And then during that aging period, this is an important time for mixing everything up and more than likely you're going to be adding some more more water in there and as far as these tub systems go my recommendation there is get it as soaked as you can essentially without there being pooling on the bottom you don't want the moisture to to you know turn into a pond in the bottom of your your worm bin so as long as everything is really really wet but without getting everything sort of pooling down in the bottom early on then you're probably probably off to a good start as far as that goes. And I think that's that's basically it. Make sure any sort of system that you start up has at least some aeration. You know, if you're going to use one of these Rubbermaid tubs, definitely drill some air, air holes in the sides and, and in the lid. 
And something that I've actually been recommending quite a bit recently is these plastic air vents that you can get. They're called louver air vents. And just drill a hole for those and insert those in the lid and the sides. And, and that really, really helps the airflow quite a bit. Other than that, I think that's, that's pretty much the main guidelines to, to take into consideration as far as uh, getting your system set up. So when you talk about the bedding using shredded cardboard, how fine does it have to be shredded? Do you use a machine or do you shred it by hand or with some scissors or a utility knife? How, how exactly you do that? Yeah, well, that's that's certainly the question that everybody has. Um, but I actually, my wife gets these these uh, drink tray cart cardboard and and egg carton cardboard um, from work for whatever reason. Her her coworkers have taken upon themselves to to accumulate these things for me. And these this is actually my favorite cardboard because it's it's very very easy to to rip up and it's very very absorbent. Now the worms love corrugated cardboard as well. And they tend to burrow in in the different channels up through up through the material, but the problem with it is that it is quite a bit more difficult to to shred up. And it, honestly, I haven't I haven't come across a really really good method for doing it other than by hand. And essentially, what I'll do is if you know we're sitting down to watch a movie or some downtime where I I can just sit and shred shred the materials, I'll just sit sit and do it then. But I, I do know some people have these crazy contraptions for for shredding up their cardboard. And I think some of those really, really heavy-duty paper shredders can actually handle um, some of the corrugated cardboard from what I've heard. But, but yeah, if, if anybody comes up with a really good method for, for shredding that material, I'd certainly like to know about it. As far as size goes, um, I guess, again, I wouldn't recommend getting anything down anywhere near to the sort of peat moss, really, really tiny. Obviously, it's going to be some sort of machine that would do that. But you'd have to find that balance. You know, you want it to be enough airflow, but at the same time, you want that surface area for the microbes and obviously for the worms to even move around in the system. So really, I mean, it comes down maybe a couple inches would probably be sort of the ideal in my mind size as far as the little shredded pieces go. Can you use uh, shredded paper from like a, an office shredder or something like that? Yeah, that's actually a really excellent question as well. I personally prefer, when it comes to paper, I absolutely love the, the brown paper. Anytime you can, I don't get very much of it, but anytime I have brown paper, that definitely goes into my worm composting systems. Over the years, I've, I've started to use less and less of the office paper. Now, I think they do have unbleached, environmentally friendly sort of, of paper um, that you can probably use. Uh, generally, a lot of these office papers are bleached. And I've actually learned the hard way that setting up a bin entirely with, with bleached office paper is not, not the best idea. I did it when I was fairly new to vermicomposting and the worms did not like it one bit. And I think it's, you know, of course, just because of these chemicals that are that in in the materials. And I've also heard that, now I don't know in terms of quantities, but um, I believe that I read on the, the EPA site that, that these bleached papers can contain dioxins and whatnot. So, you know, you have to, there's a consideration as far as what ends up in your, your compost as well. So I, I generally recommend using, if you're gonna use any of the white papers, do so in moderation. Uh, any of the sort of grayish paper or the, the really recycled stuff, 
the brown paper again, those those I have no no issues with whatsoever. And and as far as colored materials, again, you, you just don't know, you know, glossy magazines I know have heavy metals and it's just it's better to steer clear of of the really, really colored stuff and definitely the glossy stuff. So do you uh put any drainage holes in these Rubbermaid bins or do you just kind of, how do you do, how do you deal with the drainage? Well, that's, that's another good question. Um, most newcomers are going to have some sort of a lid on their system. I've actually sort of reached a point where I, there's very few of my systems have any lids. I've just, I've come to appreciate the open system just because it, there's a lot of advantages to it. Now, as a newcomer, there are probably some disadvantages, especially if you are just getting started if you happen to over overfeed the bin or if it happens to be like fruit fly season or or these sorts of things you can end up in a bit of trouble with a, an open system like that but um yeah it's it that's a that's it, a tough call i i really don't like drainage holes all that much myself cuz then you need some sort of a you know catchment or catch basin or whatever at the bottom and it just tends to get a bit too messy for my liking. Uh, with the open system, I don't really worry about that at all because there's enough evaporation. And again, the bedding, the absorbent bedding is a really, really important consideration because as long as you're adding a lot of that, that's, that's going to help to uh, soak up the excess moisture. But yeah, to each his own. Setting up a, one of my systems on uh, pictured on YouTube there is actually a double bin system where the lower bin is it acts as a reservoir. So in that case, as long as you have something that's going to catch the leachate that's going to be going through, then uh, drainage holes can certainly be advantageous. Okay, now you've touched on this a little bit, but let's uh, spell it out in more detail in terms of the uh, optimum conditions for the worms, uh, particularly in terms of moisture and temperature um, requirements. Okay, well, as far as temperature goes, uh, essentially, I would say that the ideal range would be somewhere between 15 to 30 degrees Celsius, 59 to 86 Fahrenheit would sort of be the ideal range. You know, it depends on what, obviously, most people are just going to be aiming for composting and they're not trying to optimize reproduction or, or get their worms to grow bigger or anything like that. But uh, so anywhere in that range is, is, is great. You know, I would definitely not recommend, especially if you're using a plastic system, to ever leave it out in the sun. You know, it can it basically become like a little oven, and that'll take the temperature way too high for those worms. So just that's another consideration to keep in mind. Um, what, as far as people are curious, the, according to research, the optimum temperature for reproduction is actually on the lower end, around uh, 15 degrees Celsius or 59 Fahrenheit. And as far as growth and <clears throat> development goes, 25 degrees Celsius or 86 Fahrenheit tends to be sort of the, the, the optimal temperature as far as that goes. And yeah, it was moisture, moisture. Now, the worms absolutely love moisture. It's sort of this, this double-edged sword. If you add too much moisture, like I said before, you're going to end up with, with a lower oxygen content. Just because oxygen, water can't hold oxygen the way that that regular air can, so it's certainly something to keep in mind. If you can have the the ultimate system would essentially be some sort of, of system where water continually flows through it, 
but it has enough airflow that that uh, the worms are getting enough enough oxygen. So it's you know I have read uh, according to the research the absolute you know uh, optimal moisture content is somewhere actually up as high as 85 to 90% moisture content. So they they really really love it wet, but again anyone who's just getting started if you're using a plastic tub the best the best bet is to go with the uh, wrung out sponge recommendation that a lot of people offer for composting in general you don't want to get that water pooling down on the bottom so as long as it's moist and it stays moist uh, you should be in pretty good shape that concludes part one of my interview with bentley christie of the website redwormcomposting.com I will link to that website in the show notes for this episode, and next week I will be publishing part two of my interview with Bentley Christie, where we continue to talk about vermicomposting and working with redworms. Just a few quick reminders, Innovations is on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash agroinnovations. This and all episodes of the Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. You can learn more about that at creativecommons.org. Until next time, saludos. <laughs> <laughs>